Welcome to PivotCast. This episode was recorded on September 27th, 2018 at the Transat Club. We have readings from Aaron Tucker, Dane Swan, and Tess Liam. This episode has some strong language and mature themes, so listener discretion is advised. Aaron is the author of Why Oppenheimer, Horseman of Los Amos, as well as two books of poetry with Irresponsible Mediums, The Chess Game of Marcel Duchamp, and Punchlines 1.0, and two more books about cinema, Virtual Weaponry, The Militarized Internet in Hollywood War Films, and Interfacing with the Internet in Popular Cinema. His current collaborative piece, Lost Sets, turns poems into sculptures using 3D printers. He's also the creator of ChessBard, an app that transforms chess games into poems. He is currently teaching in the English department at Ryerson University. This is Aaron Tucker. So uh, I'm just going to read kind of quickly from the three different books. Uh, I'm going to start with this book, which is the Book Thug Book, Irresponsible Mediums. It translates chess games into poems. So this collects up all the chess games of Marcel Duchamp. I co-wrote an app with Jody Miller. The, the basic idea is uh, I wrote... 12 source poems, six for black, six for white. Each of the source poems are 64 words, so eight and eight, and then each word corresponds to a square. So when a piece moves to a square, it triggers a word. Um, I don't, the thing about reading from this book is I don't like reading from this book. So I'm going to read some of the other stuff around it. And I thought I would read some of the source poems that are sort of where, where the actual poems come from, and then I'll read a few from here. So uh, this is for Borges, and this is the Black Pawns. If the rules of the riddle forbid the mention of the word itself, then we sink into the labyrinthine forking paths made possible by infinite variations around a central core full of imagined authors with permanent memories and a tolerance for unfinished works of strands forever dividing, bifurcating, until the system itself contains every possible breath, every move, every piece, every person, every god. And this is for Italo Calvino. Uh, the, uh, this is the, the poem for the White Rooks. If we should imagine a chessboard as big as a kingdom by shifting helmets and seashells successively, each piece rule-bound by the season's weather, coherent yet always self-destructive, reforming or reassembling like the small worming path of a caterpillar, that passageway is not a deformity, but rather a necessary harmony, a melodic chorus tuned to a keyboard clicking, a rook sliding, a crown. Uh, the next poem then is for the Black King. It's uh, Deep Blue. So this was the first computer program that beat uh, a world champion chess player, Gary Kasparov. The true terror rose murky from ocean beds, sublime and primordial, the ghost of digital echoes that collided, each converging and informing the other until a human move, perhaps conspiratorial, perhaps bug, but always the distinct move of a species unto itself, a genus rooted in binary evolution, half brute, half artist, not a mimic, but first of a bloodline, a series of kings. And the last one's for uh, the White Bishops, uh, Alice in Wonderland. How many of you have read Alice in Wonderland? All of us, everywhere, yeah. There's a, a beautiful chess game in it that is actually impossible. Like if you try and play the chess game, it, it's not playing by any sort of rules. It's just like Carol moving stuff around and then doing goofy things. So this is translating sort of his version of what he thinks chess should do. If we purr in check, then we must confront the surreal, as if it were stable, chase dormice like rabbits, like a castled king, always a logical path along red and white. Opposition, a path along a narrative operating system. A directory is not a promotion unless we carve an open rank for queen-protected pawns. And it really was a kitten, after all. So now I'll read some of the actual poems that emerge from this. So the first one I'm going to read is Duchamp playing 
uh, Vera Menchik, and this is in Paris in 1929. She was the first women's world chess champion. She was a seven-time, actually, world's, world's chess champion. Uh, and then she died in World War II in, in the London bombing. A sandy resistance or lock, not any red or plaster, lively applauds cube lock. Each consideration burns that spoon, abjectly observes and sounds, desert bound and shift, reproduce grinder, single stage above, circled chorus and reformed. Uh, here he is playing Joseph Cuckerman in Paris in 1929. This is uh, the black pieces. Each center shrinks estimate, curiosity, or some riddle or limb. Geared hour, a collared blessing, outside blessing, and each delivery winks punctuation and noise. Mineral conducts can or evolution and specimen each reflection or mineral sporadically dreams a dead background. Each texture is a shoreline inside a tide. A shoreline violates boundary and busts savory. I'll maybe read one more. So this is, again, playing black uh, against Gosta Stoltz in Hamburg in 1930. This center or diagonal suspends or forgets curiosity and estimate, estimate, estimate between elderly punctuation. A memory, this center, accusingly short circuits or materializes database. Clogged mathematics, any washed smartphone reproduces a woman under a beefy ghost. A farm or truthful ownership cores a slime and traps. There's some weird lines in that about women under beefy ghosts. It's a strange thing that emerges from the machine sometimes. Uh, so, machine-written poetry. Uh, I wanted to read some human-written poetry. Uh, this is a new chapbook uh, called Catalogue d'Oiseau. Uh, it's, I, I have copies, just come and see me. Or if you buy a copy of either book, you can just have one. Now, now that I said I'm willing to give it away, I guess that's not really a deal, uh, but it's, Whichever comes first. Uh, I'll read a little bit from this. Uh, so it's, it's a long poem about living in Toronto and traveling and art and all sorts of different things. It's dedicated to my partner. She's sitting there. Julia. Hi, Julia. Okay. We conspire when we see the realty sign, a Sunday open house, giggling, we enter and the home expands out, invites us up to explore, and we move between each room, theorizing its occupants into the spaces. We use our lips and words to generate appliances and furniture. We imagine pushing the button on the counter blender. We examine the walls, vintage maps of various photos and paintings of boats, and you stop at a print of 19th century Lake Ontario. There's Toronto on shore, and a variety of vessels, a fishing boat, sweep of sails tethered by braided ropes, tails of hooks and lines, a large steam ferry, passengers bunched at the rail, a lighthouse, two rowboats, one under an ornate canopy, and the left-hand distance, there's clouds darkening and bearing rain. Rain on our bedroom window, on our umbrellas, on autumn flowers, this limbo home populated with the weather of strangers, and moving room to room, we swap, project ourselves into the place, you writing in the office, bursts of tea getting up, the bookshelves full, and the small objects we've gathered traveling, my sprawl on the couch reading and waiting, and after we'll go for a walk loop through our neighborhood, repeat this imagination of us extending as we mount the stairs where the bathroom at the north end of the house opens and overlooks the kitchen and you can hear me cooking below, smell the basil curling up, mix with the lavender and I hear you submerge, splash and we are content in separate rooms, separate homes, continents while still braided together, two long rope rivers tightly knotted. We leave the house and the rain has halted scrubbed air and we continue east towards the necropolis riverdale farm a bird song overhead and that moment you are a cedar waxwing perched and watching the small thrust of your beak the black white mask around your eyes your sun chest radiates then gradiates down to a silky silver the tips of your wing and tail feather electric yellow you grip the branch with your foot the sweet of your berry meal and the stick of sap satiates you are patient 
You watch the couple as they call to you, scree, because the rain has stopped, scree, because they are together, sweet. Your clear whistle punctuates their pause. And you are a cedar waxwing, luminous and startling. You nest and trill along the Dawn River. You carry shreds of leaves, lint, branches, twine, pixelation. You watch necropolis neighbor graves one day, pair of horses the next. You make your home along the water because it grows the best berries, because it calms you, because it is a familiar force. And when the chill of oncoming winter snow descends on barren trees, your migratory path away carries you south, a flyway. You follow your own kind, a tracking formation, you boldly near the tip. You go to middle America, you glide over Iowa farm fields, oceans of orange harvest, over the expressways that fill Kansas City and Wichita and Tulsa. You rest on telephone poles, you are a silhouette against the sunset and electricity hum underwire. Perhaps you rest for a season in Laredo, deep in Texas. You nest and trill. You build from shreds of agave, from spores and tumbleweed and light and buffalo grass. You are a multi-home cedar waxwing without a long-distance migration. You do not move south to breed or settle, but rather, because that's where nourishment is and where winter is not, you return, you repeat, you loop, while some of your flock continues north, following the expansion. And it goes on from there. So, uh, last, I will read a little bit from my novel. Uh, I wanted to thank Michelle, but then she left. So. Oh, is she? That's okay. I wanted to thank uh, Dane. Hi, Dane. I'm happy to read with you. And Tessa, who I haven't actually got to meet, hello. Congratulations on your new book. It's back there as well, which is very exciting. So I'm happy to get to read with you as well. Um, so this is a book, uh, why it's a very beautiful book by no fault of mine. Uh, Ingrid Paulson is a very beautiful book designer. Uh, and it's about Robert Oppenheimer, the director of the Manhattan Project. Uh, I thought I would read sort of a passage I've never read and then a passage I've read a few times, but it has sexy bits. So that's kind of like a, a hook, I suppose. Um, poor Kramer, you like heard me just read on Monday as well. I'm trying to also pick new stuff for you, but you get something entirely new. Okay. Um, so Oppenheimer, very brilliant man, uh, but also just a misfit uh, and spent a lot of his life very lonely even though he was very intelligent. Uh, and this is a part about the end of uh, his youth and his, in particular, struggle uh, just trying to find himself, I guess. He is alone and one after another his friends pair off with women and he envisions their hands, the same hands that work beside him in the labs, running underneath the clothes of these women. He saw a psychiatrist, first at Harvard, then later at his mother's insistence, a French psychotherapist. And the two would discuss, in translation, his emotional reactions and the various states which were forming within him and circling. And after a month, the psychotherapist confided frankly in his mother and father that he was very sad and that they thought that he was having a moral crisis, that he was no different than the other young men, but that his intelligence forced him inward. And then with a silent laugh, the psychoanalyst recommended his prescription, a girl. His memories returned to his walks through the deep snow and trails of dogs that would follow them, and he remembers that fleet of animals and considers authority, wonders whether being in charge of other men will bring him any closer to his own Penelope, feels in himself a stirring of ambition in the notion that perhaps one day he'll learn to harness his intelligence, translate it into charm, find a woman just off the shoreline waiting for him to sail back towards her. He's carried this crisis into Christmas when he went to go visit his friend Ferguson in Paris. The sidewalks were slick and slushy with city snow and he walked the streets with his hands stuffed deep in his pockets, barely looking up for fear of seeing another couple leaning together and kissing. His French remained in his mouth, moldering, and he grew little, grew even quieter when Ferguson began to show him poetry that his girlfriend had written for him. He was reading one of Ferguson's poems, the words minutely slicing his fingers as he held the book when Ferguson announced that he was going to marry her. 
Even now, there's a blank spot in his memory just after that moment where he doesn't remember, and he feels horrified, then angry, and the next memory he has is wrapping a strap around his friend's neck. He held his friend like that, savored Ferguson's panic until he threw him off, his thin body no match for his broad friend, and he lay there on the ground crying as Ferguson watched him. After a time, he stopped weeping, and the two young men picked up the scattered books and reshelved them. He left, walked the late night streets, replayed his brief strangling grip of Ferguson, wondered whether this violence came from him or whether it would ebb away when he finally found someone. He finds it amazing that only a month later, Ferguson is still accepting his letters, and so when he writes to him as he did tonight, he takes care to steer clear of the topic, instead focusing on their past together, galloping against the messes. Very deliberately, he knows, he hides large parts of himself in every letter he writes, as he attempts to gather himself into cohesion, pulling together all the parts of him that filled the sealed dorm room, that he is ashamed of his own behavior, humiliated and unable to completely understand himself. And yet he has to admit that his attack on Ferguson did not emerge from some fugue state of loneliness. Autumn, the year before, his jealousy for his tutor, Patrick Blackett. He saw the female students slyly coax their eyes over his chest and down, his feet large and bursting from his boots, and he recalls how easily Blackett would talk with women, and how they would light to him, bursting at his elbow in hallway conversations. They would peer over his shoulders and classrooms and were always incredibly close to him. Each day, his coveting of Blackett's confidence and good looks would turn one rotation tighter, until alone one day in his room, he planned to poison him. He remembers walking, he remembers choosing the apple from a grocery store near campus. He settled on that cliche of an apple, a perfect form, its skin impossibly ruddy and vibrant, and that skin curved into his palms as he carried it. He walked through Cambridge's silent campus, all its occupants elsewhere and busy, and as he walked, he planned this gift for Blackhead. He entered into the chemistry lab solitary and mixed the poison himself. He carefully coated the apple, and when he was done, the apple still looked flawless, and he stood back, he waited for it to dry, and he saw the natural sheen only slightly dulled, and that was when he placed it on Blackhead's desk, the taste of laced apple in his own mouth driving him to sickness. Blackett didn't eat the apple, though, and he never found out why. Perhaps it was the abject strangeness of a pristine apple in the exact middle of his desk. Perhaps he saw the lightest fingerprint on its skin, how it warped the layer be above the apple's own. Perhaps he brought it all the way to his mouth and then noticed the smell. Distinctly unnatural. He looks out his window repulsed by his own violence and his own self-pity, and he writes letter after letter, and he repeats to himself that he is alone. He is alone. He's doomed forever to forever occupy his room with the expanse of his memory and intelligence, and he mulls through this crisis that beats loudly underneath him. And I'll read kind of a much shorter passage to end. So he doesn't remain alone forever, but he he, do, he doesn't he doesn't really get any more healthy. Uh, so he I'm going to read the passage where he's the director of the Manhattan Project at this point. He's been forbidden to fly, but he sneaks away. He makes up an excuse to go to San Francisco to see his mistress. He's married to one woman. He's going to go see her in San Francisco. Uh, he knows that the government is following him, and he doesn't care. And it's sort of this moment of hubris where he just it doesn't matter to him. So they're in her apartment. I'm so glad you came. I still don't know why we had, you had to leave. I mean, I know why. It has something to do with the war. It does, he admits. But he knows that the gadget needs to be built to defeat the Reich, and that Gene would struggle with his justifications. And in the protest of his mind, he sees her among what he imagines to be the future, post-bomb rubble, bent and soothing, the scorched skin of a child, and lifting the fragile frame. And he responds to her in her apartment, it does, but I can't tell you no. I'm just glad you're back, she repeats. 
but this time her eyes are slightly more animal, spooked a hoarse seconds after a blinding blast of sheet lightning, and he is tentative as he moves closer to her on the couch in elemental attraction, until they are hip to hip and she lifts her legs up and on top of his own, they intertwine, and then he dismisses her expression despite her expanded pupils, those dark planets eradicating the color of her irises, her body tipping towards him as if it's about to fall from a tremendous height. I love you, I can't stop. And then there's a musical cue. Her words resonate across all his states, rippling through each separate yet densely interconnected body. He is sitting on Crisis, his horse, and as they rest, the bright riding blanket underneath the saddle is the same color as the mid-morning light. It's cold and the sweat turns into steam off the horse's hide and it knickers, turning his neck and head towards him. And this blends without pause with Jean, I can't stop. And then he's walking back through the Cambridge snow with the dogs swelling his ranks, the snow bunching around his heels, and he hears Jean, I can't stop. And then his eyes are bleached by the incredible light of a Los Alamos sunrise with its illumination erasing the boundaries between sky and mountain so that the whole sky is blue-white nothing, and he hears Jean, I can't stop. And he hears Jean, her words permeating and slipping in between all his states, their echo growing stronger the more those bodies resound against each other, her words across all his times and landscapes. She unwraps herself from him stands while grabbing his hand, pulls him to his full height, and then they kiss and they are moving towards her bedroom. He starts to pull her shirt over her head and she tells him, I've never stopped. And then they are exposed, grabbing for each other. Their clothes dissolve as they press together, the two walking in strange shuffled concert to the bed with her leg in between as a stride stance, their arms mixed, then bodies momentarily bent to pull pants over ankles before straightening, chest to chest, mouth to mouth, before they fall backwards together, the lamplight snaking into the room, and he sees her body in parts, her hand, her collarbone, the side of her stomach as she moves underneath him, her hand around and guiding him into her. And then there are no shadows, the light and dark of the room equally pure, the elements touching without mixing, and any other place or object or person or menace that is not her in him simply ceases to exist, never existed. Thank you. Thank you so much, Erin. Um, so happy to bring up Dane. Uh, Dane Swan is a spoken word artist, an emerging editor, an author of poetry, and shorter works of fiction. Of note, his second book, Amingus Lullaby, was a finalist for the 2017 Trillium Book Prize for Poetry. Ooh, yes. <laughs> Currently, Dane is co-editing the inaugural edition of Quattro's Best New Poets in Canada series with Kate Marshall Flaherty and editing an anthology for Guernica Editions, which is scheduled to be published in 2020. I'm very excited about that. Uh, and Dane can regularly be seen performing with multi-arts collective Mixtape Cultures, of which he is a founding member. Please welcome Dane. Um, so I'm going to read from a bunch of stuff. Uh, I have copies of this, which is my short story collection. It doesn't hurt people anymore. And this little thing in the back is my novella. I'm going to read tiny, tiny snippets from them. Uh, but I really wanted to read poetry, so I'm mainly going to read poetry today. So this is a snippet from... Uh, Short, the last short story in my collection called A Brief Guide to Gaslighting. He stood up, paced for a bit with his head down, then stopped and faced us. First, this isn't some stupid Korean vengeance film where you get to cut off limbs or something. That's utterly ridiculous. So what would you do, yelled James from the back. Edward sat back down in front of us scratched his head for a second, and shared his thoughts. The thing that struck me when I interviewed him was that idea that he owned real estate in people's minds. This is your last chance to evict him from up there. I figure, the, figure that you have three choices. One, 
I give all this evidence to a contact of mine who is a police officer. But to be honest, a lot of these are summary offenses. You would all probably have to be interviewed or testify in court. It would be a lot of paperwork for maybe a big fine. Two, you do nothing. Take home the knowledge that all those things you, you thought were missing and all those times you were lied to were real. Now that you know that you are not crazy, you can seek help. Three, I'm weary of telling you this, but Robert is in this building. Everyone breathed in at once and froze at this, and Edward gave us a moment to digest it. If you wish, Edward resumed, I will give you each five minutes with him. Want to scream at him, punch him, anything within reason. I promised him that nothing would happen to him that a doctor couldn't fix. In turn, he has promised not to report any of you. How can you guarantee that, someone near the front asked. He knows that I can find him. He knows the type of friends I have. In my business, my word is my bond. Why don't you all speak amongst yourselves? I want a consensus. Think about how you can all evict this man from the real estate in your head. Yes? If you look to the left, there are cookies, fruit, sandwiches, juice, pop, beer, and a few wine coolers. Help yourself. I will leave you for 15 minutes. You all remember where the washrooms are. Great, Mike. He asked us, why are you afraid of the white devil? Before I answered, three people lauded his racist rhetoric. When it was my turn, I simply said, I and I fear no man. We wear our neighborhoods like armor, our hurdles like the Himalayas, the city line like an electric fence. We fear everything. We're afraid of the cops, afraid of people we don't know, terrified of our so-called allies, afraid to leave, afraid to get on a bus, stick our thumbs out, take our cars and drive somewhere we feel safe, afraid to go, go it alone, go where we are more of a minority but feel loved, afraid of love. It took 30 years years to find courage, to find love, 17 for lust, still searching for home. The labor for love is ridiculous. Maybe it's the work we fear. It's fear that has us landlocked, afraid to leave the fear behind. Purchase a ticket, depart. Town of empty belly, no identity, abusive culture civilized, these glass cells we call home, brick penitentiaries labeled neighborhoods, to be alive, live in the middle of everything, drop etiquette, know thy neighbor, barter at markets, hold the heartbeat of a city, action, people, as a cubic zirconia given by a loved one, to feel, unbridled by trivial niceties, drop silly walls, the poor don't want your money, they want their own, laugh in the rain, cry for good reason, cry until dehydrated, unable to produce a tear, take the city's pulse like a naturalists, naked, barefoot, the oxygenation of a city, this starving beast, ugly but she is our child, we think she's beautiful, melanoma, cataracts must have our eyes, embrace noise, prosper within mess, live for once, live! Refuse property management propaganda, a condo is not a community, the universe does not rotate around you, it orbits around our child. This is our baby, streets, home, city. Look at your hand. Do not look at your hand. Open your clenched fists and look at the palm of your hand. Do not look at your hand. Observe the age lines etched into your skin that make you unique. Do not look at your hand. Use your hand. Do not look at your hand. Grasp the hand of that person you love. Do not hold their hand in fear that they will not squeeze back with equal strength. Smile. 
Do not smile, for your happiness is seen as a threat. Kiss your loved ones. Do not kiss them in fear of their embarrassment. Look at me. Do not look at me. Look at me observing my surroundings. In other words, don't look at me. Surrounded by so many beautiful people who have been taught that they are not. Do not look at me. I'm overwhelmed by the beauty that surrounds us. You are looking in the wrong direction. Do not look at me. Observe everyone here. Take this moment in. Remember, we don't smile. We are taught that smiling is a sign of weakness. Do not smile. Smiling is a sign of weakness. Do not smile. This is a safe space. There's no such thing as a safe space. Look around you. Do not look around. No. Look. No one here will judge you. Two. According to theory, one is limited to the number of moments they are allowed to really smile. An estimate can be calculated at birth depending on the individual's race, religion they will likely be forced into, if we believe they will actually believe that religion, their culture, the economic standing of their parents, if they are born in a war zone, how many generations ago their family migrated to their current or future home, our estimate of how cool they will think they are when they are a teenager, the size of their extended family, how many direct family members are destined to find folly with their life, whether they possess the bravery to limit their exposure to said family members, if they have a parent or person who takes on the role of parent, thus being their parent, who fights for them vehemently, if they love, if, if they are expected to find love, if they will realize love doesn't mean happily ever after, if they realize love doesn't always mean love, if they realize a hug is as powerful as a kiss, at what point of their life they understand how amazing holding hands with someone they care for is, when they figure out that it's okay to fail, the age that they have an epiphany and understand that they will always be a failure in someone's eyes, at what age they will finally give themselves the space to heal, the estimated moment they will stop thinking about dancing dancing in public is cool. The approximate age that they will stop tapping their toes in rhythm and in situations that we can surmise that they have a high likelihood of owning a lawn to shoo younger people off of, whether or not they have the potential propensity to develop such behavior. Three. There are certainly more poetic words than beautiful. But to paint this moment heavenly would be to turn my observation to fiction. These eyes did not seek a thesaurus to exult the motion beating within my heart. They witness, as eyes often want to do. Our ears listened. Voices sang along. All five senses took in the moment. And beautiful is the word that came to mind. Okay, so this is from Tuesday, one of the two books I actually have here, the short story collection I have as well, I think I mentioned that. And I'm going to read the last, I don't know, three or four pages of it. So I'm giving you no contacts, you have to get the book to get <laughs> the contacts. Well, I was searching the intercom at your condo's entrance for your name. The security guard asked who I was. When I told him that I came to see you, he explained that you had called down and buzzed me in. It's an older condo. The elevator is slow. They tried to make the thing look fancy and new with buttons and a f TV, but it's still slow. You can't hide age. I took my makeup off when I got home. I was tired, and I probably looked older than I am, but I have nothing to hide. This is how I look. I took a deep breath. Walked through the hallway to your door and knocked. You greeted me, complained that it was past one, that you had a meeting at 10, asked to hang out my jacket, and I revealed that I was wearing nothing more than pajamas and rain boots underneath. You didn't laugh. You hung out my jacket, told me to sit at the small dining table and made us tea. My apartment is probably bigger than your condo. This feels like a home. There's things on the walls pictures from places you've been, little trinkets and I like it. It suits you. You met me at the table with ginger tea and sugar. I never saw you for a tea person. You poured me a mug and asked, so what's up? 
I don't want to marry you. I paused, looked you in the eyes and continued. I want to be your girlfriend. <laughs> really? Be your girlfriend. No b I told you everything. You knew about my bad luck at work, but I told you anyway. I told you how and when I stopped adding clients. You've met Sue, but you didn't know she had a bar. I told you about it. Then that she convinced me to work for her, that I eventually got rid of the rest of my clients. If I was your only client, were we exclusive? Only for the last 10 months or so. Any guys that I know? Guys and girls. No, mainly one night stands. It went on for hours. You asked me questions and I answered. We only stopped when one of us had to use the toilet or you boiled water for the teapot. I was tired of the secrets. Finally, you asked your last question. What was up with that kiss today? I was going to tell you everything on Friday. I'm here because I didn't want to wait. I thought that was going to be my last chance to kiss you. You sighed loudly. Any more questions, I asked? That's it. I need some time to think things over, but I got no more questions. I stood up and grabbed my phone. Suddenly, you had one more question. What are you doing? I'm getting a ride home. It's late. I have a bed. Sleep here. I didn't say a word. I walked to the front closet, turned off my phone and put it in my jacket pocket. I reached out to you. You led me to your bedroom by the hand. Max, what's the deal with all these photos on the wall? That's what I do when I have free time. When we reached your bedroom, I slid beneath the blankets and closed my eyes. For 10 minutes, you sat on the edge of your bed. When I snuck a look, you were staring at me. I hoped that you looked at me with affection. You left the room and shut off the light. When you returned, you smelled like soap. You'd slid under the covers wearing sweatpants and a t-shirt. Your arm wrapped around me. We spooned. I grabbed your arm with my two hands. I decided that I would try to convince you to call in sick tomorrow. I know where you live now. I'm not letting go. Thank you very much, guys. Liam is a queer writer living in Montreal. She is the author of the chapbook, Tell Everybody I Say Hi, and her writing has appeared or is forthcoming in Plentitude, Room Magazine, Prism, Best Canadian Poetry 2018, and elsewhere. Her essay, Rice Cracker, won the Constance Rook Creative Nonfiction Prize in 2015, and her first full-length poetry book is Obits. Hello. Thanks, Michelle. Um, and thank you, Aaron, and thank you, Dane, for your readings. Um, okay. Is this okay for volume-wise? Yeah, okay. Um, I'm going to start with some poems from the third section of this book. Um, the section's called Rewrites, and um, I guess the whole thing has a kind of shadow title, which is I'm not entirely satisfied with my English degree. Um, so that's the, the main, main gist. The first and the first few poem, poems are called My Body in Three Movements. One, I read we can understand Shakespeare's use of the word nothing as a reference to zero, where zero means vulva, at least in his sonnets. I thought, how nice, one of my body parts in being nothing is something. This something enough to know I want to drop Shakespeare, stop writing, and learn how to do something useful with my hands. I thought it out, decided to become an electrician, and my friend told me I would make beautiful light art, neon sculptures shaped like nothing in particular, or my body all wired, lit, and bending. But no, it's not my thing to move nothing. Two, I'll start a queer construction company to advocate for our rights and I won't wish for much else, a lie. I'll try reading again, I'll try writing in the evenings when I'm tired from wiring light and I'll try not to romanticize this literal electricity, 
but I'll probably fail because, well, honestly, I'm trying to figure out a way to want to be in the world. And you know I expect to be told not to put words like honestly in my poems, not to start with that shit. So I won't start with it. I won't end with it honestly either. Three, I've thought about it, and the nothing is not my body. It is not my body, a tight 14 lines. It cannot be mine. And it would not be my body drunk with neon lights either. It's easier if I understand it is not my body in particular. Easier if I accept accepted criticism. If I admit nothing ever happened to any part of my body, if I lie if I have nothing to lose. Easy if I am an absence named nothing. I write zero to describe grief, and to me it means I had more than a pen to begin with. <laughs> They're applauding, we're applauding. <laughs> this poem sort of have, has different voices. And I guess, I don't know, when I'm, when I'm quoting someone, maybe I'll try to like face a different way or something so that it's clear. Um, it's called, Of Course We Have Doubt. Which family by blood and which by law? We are a language you didn't learn. I felt related to Uncle Chungjin even if I didn't tell. This is a quote. When we feel haunted, it is the pull of our old home we're experiencing. But a more upsetting possibility is that the past has become homeless. Yi Yun Lee, 2017. His dark gray hair and wide, quiet smile assured me we were a we. We are a history you research. If it weren't the truth, I wouldn't believe there were ever any mangoes bought, sold, or eaten in hometown Alberta. Maybe no we grew up there. At the kitchen table, my father cut the sweet and sour fruit we ate slice by slice. Form by form, Uncle Chungjin taught me Tai Chi, the art of shifting weight around your body slowly. And what I barely remember I've learned since is wrong. We are not so much disappearing as we are a distance. The mango in one hand, knife in the other, a slick, shrinking, yellow sculpture. We who try to verify our memories often find facts don't help. Was it 92 or 93, the World Series we watched sitting on a picnic blanket in our living room? Sometimes we are like birds thudding into windows. Watch video clips of Joe Carter's home run. We won. That was 93. On a blue and white gingham blanket, we got macaroni salad on the carpet. Look how we all pile on to each other. Maybe it was the same year in Jagda when someone tall enough picked a mango from the tree next to the driveway and shared it with me. Maybe not. What is it in me would devour the world to utter it? Lee Young Lee in 1990. Uncle Chung Jean pushing energy away, inviting it back. We are a fruit that doesn't need to be washed if the dirt is clean and tended to. You don't need to put the red-green skin in your mouth, but why wouldn't you? Once, a lover called me yellow on the way to a baseball game. A cut through our we. That one sours closer to the seed. This crowd has hollered itself weak. Vin Scully in 93. Uncle Chung Jean died a few years before his wife, Aunt Jan, did. Jan looked like my father, like my brothers look like him, like I look like them. So Aunt is like sister once removed. Why don't we put it that way? Which by blood and which by law and what nationality or what kindred and relation, what blood relation? Teresa Hakyung Cha in 82. Some kinship words haunt me. Opa and Oma may be more familiar to Indonesians. It is widely used across Indonesia, particularly by the Chinese. Tunisia in 2018. Some language by blood and some by law, and some takes root where it is planted. And what common knowledge I have of Aunt Wee, Tian Wee of Timagang, 
her hometown central, an area on a map highlighted pink. I find facts like silkworms, honey, and soy oil. I keep looking. I remember that father wrote our genealogy in a book with Chinese characters. Unfortunately, none of us could read it, and we don't know what happened to that important book. I suspect it is now lost. Uncle Seat in 2015. This knowledge repeats. This crowd has hollered itself weak. Wheat, barley, canola, and beef. What kind of we grew up around me? Hometown told my mother, and she told me it was impressed how she kept our mixed-race family together. We were a question, if not questioned. And I expect to be corrected, to be told there are better ways to cut a mango than the slow peel toward the seed, but I'm done. I've scraped the yellow flesh off the skin with my teeth. Uh, this is one of the obits, um, and it has a, a Javanese phrase in it that's, um, it roughly translates to, have you ever seen such a thing? It's kind of just an expression for um, amazed disbelief, and I got it from my uncle's memoir, which was translated by my cousin, so I'm getting that translation information from family sources. I, I didn't, like, fact check it or anything. Um, obit, an exception. When one February day felt like August, rain was a sound she returned, and the click, click, click of the radiator expanding and contracting, it was not like a lung. The smell of dust burning was not like an answer. I mean, I remembered her, and it was exceptional. An obit, an opportunity, a tumor took over her pancreas. Opotumon hayo. I never saw the thing. Instead, a philodendron lying flat on a balcony across the street, and I assumed it was living. Try to remember this is part of a series of failures. The plant on its side, not something you can just pick up. And how its leaves underwent winter, green and glossy, was not like nothing. I will not turn her into a plant. I will not unearth her like that. Stop looking into the dirt asking, did grief knock me over, or did it not pick me up? Um, this one is called The Stoics. Epictetus, born into enslavement, was a Stoic, so he would have summed up his circumstance like this. It could have been worse. On a good day, get out of bed, go as far as the porch, and stand still. Stoic, as in stoikos, as in stoa, a shelter or the place where Zeno of Kidium taught. Stoa may be sta as in to stand, set down, make, or be firm. William B. Irving of Dayton, Ohio, a living Stoic in 2015, argued to live stoically meant one would always say the glass is half full because delight in its fullness is heightened by the possibility of emptiness. Stoic sounds close to stone, too but I feel like a pebble supposed to take pleasure in not being totally weathered. Zeno, Epictetus, and Bill sit in rocking chairs on my porch because they enjoy the way the wood creaks. Their glasses are empty. I offer them nothing. They delight in the existence of glass. How nice to see through it. You could be a sad stoic, but you would have weapons you could use to overcome sadness, says Bill, not thinking of any weapons made of metal. I put elastic bands around my wrist and snap them. The Stoic would delight. Bill insists on the word delight, as in higher pleasure, in a sunny day, precisely because it is not cloudy, nor is it raining. The Stoic might wish to be a farmer if he weren't so high on being a Stoic. Every evening, when a parent puts his child to bed, Bill explained, he should allow for the thought of his child dying to flicker. Loss, also a problem belonging to the future, so why not entertain the thought? The next morning, the child is still alive, but if the Stoic did not allow for that flicker, less delight in his child's life. Sta, as in status, as in protected by statutes, as in stand, set down, make, or be firm if nothing holds you down already. I tell Bill antidepressants don't work for me, and I always let the thought of my own death to hover. 
If I wake up tomorrow, I doubt I'll be filled with deep and interesting delight. Bill says he doesn't want to talk to me anymore if I'm always going to be so negative. Bill says stoicism doesn't prevent grief, but a stoic will engage in preventative measures. When a glass is empty, it means a thunderstorm could have been a tsunami. It means control yourself. It means stay in bed if you feel too weak to manage your melancholia and don't talk to Bill. I'm convinced that most human misery is self-inflicted, says the Stoic, who has a job and the full support of his faculty. They do not torture themselves because it could have been sunny, because I will go back to bed, because I will wake up again and again, because I will repeat. I will clean the coffee pot every morning, dump the cold grounds into my hand, put my hand under the tap as if I have unearthed myself. <laughs> um, and the I think the last thing I'm going to read is um it's the coda to the first the first poem um it's the coda to my body in three movements You are not here to clean the dirty mirror do you remember your body it is a storm you wait for leave every door and window open your politics refer to an attempt to make some part of yourself safe. Where are you when your phone signal drops? Don't worry, one day you will get to go into an electronic store and trust somebody. Even if all you are ever taught is to love men and math, even if the Ragnar Kjartiksen exhibit only moved you literally from room to room, it's okay. Here, feel the space between your body and your shadow. Thank you. <laughs> For more information on Pivot, go to pivotreadings.ca.